9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkoff, in hot New York City. We are joined today, let me go from near to far, by our old friend Evelyn Farkas, recently a uh, candidate for Congress, uh, made a valiant effort there, but we are glad she is back among us. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, David. Thank you. And then next closest, I think, is Ed Luce in Washington, D.C. How you doing, Ed? Doing great. Thanks, David. And then we get a little bit farther out into the West, and we have Rosa Brooks in one of those Montana, Wyoming places. Wyoming. Wyoming. And then, as far away as you can get, in sunny California, <laughs> we have Corey Shockey. How are you, Corey? I am exceedingly well. Thank you, David. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, all right, well, let's take 15 seconds here or two minutes at the beginning. Evelyn, how was running for Congress? Was that fun? Uh, no, it was not fun. <laughs> I do not recommend it to, to, to anyone. <laughs> well, I, so much for so much for the inspirational get involved. No, in I'm so sorry. It was so miserable. I mean, first of all, you spend all your time fundraising, okay? Second, uh, then when you think it's going to be fun and games, you're going to meet people. There's a pandemic. And so then you're Zooming and you're on the phone, but it's not the same. And you know, that doesn't, anyway, always, that doesn't always happen, Evelyn. Yeah, and then, you know, I learned a lot of interesting things, like history has a say. Um, you know, I never had history directly affect, you know, history affected sort of my work in the sense that when I was responsible in the Pentagon for Russia and Ukraine and Russia invaded Ukraine, like that affected my work. But history never affected something I was trying to achieve, I guess, sort of professionally or, or in my life. It, it, so this was a very interesting thing because basically Black Lives Matter washed over like a tidal wave. And, um, and so we were looking really good two weeks out from our election. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we were tied for second place. <laughs> well, you ran a good race, Evelyn. Yeah, we were, all, we were all proud of you, Evelyn. So there you oh, go. Thank you. Yeah, next, time, next time, although maybe you're thinking never again. But <laughs> Not during a pandemic, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, we have it on good authority. Go listen to our, pa- our podcast last Thursday that this will only last several more years. So don't, <laughs> don't, don't worry about a thing. Um, all right. I so, thought the president said this weekend it's just going to disappear. Exactly my point. Um, <laughs> If, if Donald Trump says it's over, it's not over. Um, so I thought, you know, for a change of pace, I would like to go to each of you and talk about the world, the place we're supposed to be discussing on this podcast, not Donald Trump, not the COVID crisis in America. I'm not persuaded that there is a world, David, so I, I don't know if I can do that. 
Well, okay. We can talk about the absence of a world, I suppose. I mean, There's you, stuff that appears on my screen from time to time, but I don't know if it's real. Yeah, yeah. We, we could do a philosophical podcast. We could ask, does the world exist? Because well, certain people in our government act like it doesn't. And doesn't exist simultaneously, and Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's world. You're quite right. So, I like it. So it does exist and it doesn't exist. Like the cat. Is it dead or alive? I know, no, I knew the cat. I knew what we were referring to there. No, I'm talking about my cats. Oh, yeah. you're a cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. I mean, they're in the basement. They could be dead. They could be alive. Have you thought of naming one of your cats Schrodinger? <laughs> uh, Schrody. It would, be <laughs> it would be a very good name. Anyway, so I just thought, you know, let's look at the world. Let's look at what's going on in the world. I've got you here, Ed. I'll start with you. We'll go around. But, for example, Ed, today... Mike Pompeo said more nasty things about China that they deserve about what's going on in Hong Kong. The United States also said it's going to sanction more companies that have to do with the Uyghurs uh, even, and, and the suppression of the Uyghurs, even though the president, according to Bolton, embraced the suppression of the Uyghurs. Um, uh, there's more concern about what the Chinese are doing in the South China Sea. The British suspended their extradition treaty from Hong Kong. Is China making some big move here that we all ought to be paying attention to? Uh, or is this just them rising as they naturally would relative to everybody else falling? Uh, I, th I think it's a brilliant question. I mean, uh, I, I was talking to people who know more about this um, than me the other day, one of whom was Kurt Campbell, who I think, you know, is probably as influential on America's uh, what an America, what a, what a Biden administration's approach would be to, to China as anybody else might be in contention right now. And he, you know, made the obvious point, but which I haven't really considered, um, that you're slapping your forehead. Um, I didn't know. Yeah, I was sorry. Um, uh, you, you had a mosquito in your forehead. Yeah, sorry, I'm missing right. Exactly. Um, uh, that um, uh, this idea that China plays the long game and is patient, uh, and we're, we're hopelessly chasing our tails in the West because we have these short-term electoral calendars, has been really belied in the last two, three years. Xi Jinping is an impatient man. Um, China is no longer, you know, um, hiding its light under a bushel and biding its time. China is in a hurry, um, while Xi Jinping is in a hurry. And... It is forcing events in the region. It's pushing people, um, uh, pushing its neighbors, not just in the South China Sea, but all over the region, um, and becoming a lot more aggressive. So, um, you know, I, I, I have no um, compliments to pay Mike Pompeo and how he's conducting his job as Secretary of State. And I don't wish to compliment him on his China policy because he ought to be building you know, alliances um, and reaching out to America's allies in the region and elsewhere, and he isn't. Um, uh, but there's no doubt about it, the deterioration in China's relations with the rest of the world, the, the responsibility for that chiefly lies in China and with Xi Jinping. And it's becoming a different kind of China, and we need to recalibrate and think very hard about how to deal with this much more assertive China. 
What do you think of that, Corey? You're there in, in California. You're on the ocean caught between the twin threats of, you know, rising China and anarchy in Portland, where we've sent in the troops. Um, and, you know, decaying Oregon could lead to real problems for you, as I'm sure you fear on a daily basis. We Californians are accustomed to ignoring all things going on north of our state border. So Washington State, Oregon, we're indifferent. Indifferent. Um, If you haven't seen, but if if folks haven't seen retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling's piece in the Washington Post about why police shouldn't be wearing camouflage uniforms, that is, it's about a mindset, not just about a uniform, I endorse it wholeheartedly. I also endorse wholeheartedly what Ed just outlined about China. I think that's right. I'm opposed to the view uh, that's fashionable right now that we never should have tried to incentivize and encourage a responsible stakeholder China. Because I think not only is it true that a strong, prosperous China is likelier to be a peaceful and cooperative China because as people grow more prosperous, they become more demanding political consumers. But also, it says a lot about who we are, that we weren't just trying to submerge China in poverty and squalor, that we wanted to help the people of China get to a place um, where where they could be satisfied and well-governed. Uh, it says a lot about who we are. So um, it's sad that we were wrong, but I actually think what we are seeing is and have been seeing for the last four or five years is American policy shifting from that as we saw China less and less willing to adopt compliance with the existing international order in order to continue its rise to prosperity and prominence. And so I think while President Trump has uh, identified the challenges of a hostile rising China, I think an American president of either party would have been in, would have been in the position of acknowledging a rising China as a major threat. And um, I, I believe a different president of either political party would also have carried out that policy by shooting itself in its feet less often than the Trump administration has by internally contradictory policies. Okay. Well, uh, Rosa, let me ask you about this, and then I want to shift to a different part of the world when we get to Evelyn. But, but Rosa, um, we could have another president, a different president, in January, um, and that president is going to be confronted by this particular Chinese government and this China. Um, do you think the policies of that government are going to differ much from the policies articulated by Mike Pompeo? Yes, I think they will. I mean, I think, well, I, I think that it seems very likely to me that on the one hand, a Biden administration will take very seriously the notion of China as a long-term strategic competitor, 
will take very seriously the notion that China has been making very intelligent, targeted investments in uh, uh, technologies that, frankly, mean that the U.S. is not as competitive anymore uh, when it comes to our own defense, when it comes to power projection ability. I think a Biden administration would, would likely take that very seriously, and that would really alter some defense invest investments in particular, uh, you know, particularly, I think, in the area of anti-access and area denial technologies. China is, is uh, ahead of us, and a Biden administration would take that very seriously. There's plenty of continuity there with what the Pentagon has been saying, even during the Trump administration. Not that much continuity with what Trump himself has been saying. As we know, he, he just waxes hot and cold, uh, depending on his mood of the day and what's going on. Um, so so in, in, I, I do think we'd see, we'd see some actual continuities with, with what the Pentagon has been saying. I think we would see some it's, it's complicated because I think we would see both some discontinuities with the rhetoric from the Trump administration. I think we would see much less arbitrarily inflammatory rhetoric from a Biden administration, but at the same time, a long-term investment in recognizing that, that China, you know, there is still, there is still a possibility that they could end up being allies on all kinds of key issues, but also recognizing that, uh, they are a competitor and potentially an adversary, and that we need to be we need to be prepared to handle potential tensions. Uh, I don't think we will be seeing a deliberate fanning of the flames, however, uh, and I think we've been seeing some of that from Mike Pompeo and from others. I think we'll be seeing a much more careful, long-term effort to say, let's work with China when we can. Let's let's hedge by making sure that we invest in the technologies that will ensure adequate defense. Uh, if we can't cooperate indefinitely, um, and let's try to keep the rhetorical panic and alarm and hostility level as low as we can. I never, ever disagree on this podcast with Rosa. However, in this particular case, I will suggest that it seems possible, more possible to me, that Biden will feel an obligation to appear tough on China early. And that he will sound a little bit like Pompeo. I think the foreign policy will be more deft, and I totally agree with you that that uh, that the president's not going to screw things up like Trump. Nor is he going to say to Xi Jinping, "Hey, sure, go ahead, throw those weakers in a concentration camp." Um, but I do think there's going to be a lot of pressure on labor issues, on climate issues. Pardon me. You see, the Chinese have the Uyghurs manufacturing masks. Yes, we did see. Yeah. Yes. Well, and and that was the some of the sanctions to that were announced today have to do with stuff like that. So, Evelyn, let's turn to another part of the world. I mean, you know, Vladimir Putin was probably really unhappy with the prospect that you might end up in the Congress. Um, but now that that's result, what now we know who to blame. That Evelyn well, they actually did interfere in my election, so they they, they managed to. I'm not kidding. This guy who was very closely affiliated, Kremlin-friendly, Russian, um, placed a piece in the local online, one of the online newspapers, yes, um, criticizing me. But it wasn't very serious. It was more like them signaling to me that they're watching. Because none of my readership understood, I mean, none of the people read or understood what it was all about. Well, but let's talk about what he's doing now, 
um, uh, and, and where he's going here. Um, it, you know, he's sort of put himself in position to be the leader of Russia, I think, till 2036 or something like that. Um, but, you know, he's in a precarious position in some respects. And historically, what he does when he's in a precarious position is he makes some move in the near abroad that makes him look stronger. Um, now, you know, this could happen in a place like Ukraine. It could happen in a place like the Baltics. It happened once in a place like Georgia. Um, it has happened in Syria. Do you worry that with a few months left ticking on the Trump calendar, that he will do something like that? Or alternatively, do you think he might wait to just go to do it under Biden to, no. <laughs> to prove, wait, to prove that Biden, like Trump and like Obama, will kind of go easy on, on Putin. They're just not going to stand up to him. Well, okay, he'll definitely test Biden as in addition to understanding and taking full advantage of the, 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 the moment he has right now, which is now until November when Trump hopefully gets defeated. Vladimir Putin will understand that he, and he, he's, he doesn't understand our system fully, but he understands enough to know that this guy may not stay in power beyond November, right? Or beyond January. And so what he'll try to do is opportunistically get away with as much as he can, as he has done with these bounties, as he has done with a whole host of other things. We see him encroaching upon territory in Syria. So he'll try to basically achieve as many of his foreign policy objectives as he can on Trump's watch, knowing that he'll be more likely to get away with it. I think in the transition, he'll likely be more cautious because he'll know that Biden is coming and it'll be a little harder, but maybe not. Maybe we're in danger all the way till January. Um, and what do I mean specifically? I mean, right now, look, we see, yes, he said, he, he basically passed a law and said, I can be a, more or less a president for life, you know, till 2036. And there were demonstrations in Moscow. There were separate demonstrations out in the far West. Those had more to do with the, the tension between central government and local government and better local government that the Russians were getting out there. Um, and, Anyway, suffice it to say, Putin, though it may, as you said, he may appear strong because he's getting this mandate from his parliament, he's not very strong. And so he's going to try to demonstrate that he's strong. He's got 150,000 troops involved in a SNAP exercise that they just announced that's basically on the border with Ukraine. So it's the southern region. So the southern district, southern military district and the western military district together are involved in this, as well as about, I think they have, uh, I want to say about 400 aircraft and 100 vessels, something like that. So they are clearly conducting exercises, which we know from history, uh, oftentimes do end up being used as the, the initiation phase of an actual military offensive operation. So the Ukrainians, of course, are not ruling that out, and they've declared that they're going to do military exercises also starting in September, and they're inviting NATO and other allies to it. But the, the other thing I will note, since we're on Russia and, and Russians, Russia's destructive and um, dangerous foreign policy, is Syria. Um, the international community just announced 
They just agreed on something like $7.7 billion of assistance, which UN folks say is not enough humanitarian assistance for the Syrians. And guess what the Chinese and the Russians did? They basically said, oh, you guys aren't going to be able to get that assistance into the innocent Syrian civilians, primarily in Syria, but also in other countries. But the ones in Syria are not going to get that assistance because there's only, I believe, one way through. Um, so the Russians and Chinese effectively are starving and, and potentially imperiling the Syrians from being able to fight back against the pandemic. Wow. Well, ominous and disturbing uh, on, on, on both counts. Ed, let's move to a part of the world that you're familiar with, um, uh, and that is India. Uh, India, on the one hand, has been facing off with China more aggressively in the course of the past couple of months, um, which raises a number of questions. Uh, but also, Modi has been responding to uh, COVID by rounding up opponents. Um, in other words, you know, he's kind of nationalist demagoguing it. Um, and my, the question for you is, do you think that's going to continue much more? Does that raise the possibility of further problems with China, or has all that gone as far as it's likely to go? No, I mean, I, just in the last few days, um, several fairly prominent um, human rights activists and NGO figures have been um, arrested. Some numbers are coming through um, that disproportionately of the um, couple of thousand or certainly more than a thousand people who are in detention, um, for a various trumped-up-sounding <clears throat> charges to do with protests, to do with sedition, which is a colonial-era law, um, that the majority of those are Muslim. The government, um, Delhi's not giving out proper figures, but the estimates from those trying to monitor this is that this, the cover of COVID is being used exactly how you would expect Narendra Modi to be using it. Um, which is to crack down on anti-nationals. And if you're Muslim, you're already half guilty of being an unnational in his idea of India. So I don't expect it, unfortunately, um, to slow down at all. Uh, you know, Modi's got a history of doing very draconian things that aren't very good for the country and people liking it anyway, because that's what strong men do. Um, and one of them was the demonetization of the currency in which the poor really got hit in his first term. And the way he's handled the coronavirus is another example. He, when India only had about 300 infections in, in March, he just locked down the whole economy at a few hours notice, stranding tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of migrant workers, provided no way of them getting home. And so you had a great trek, the, I think the largest human exodus in decades of people, tens of millions going from the, trying to get from the cities to their villages. Um, then he decided that <clears throat> this pandemic, um, the, this lockdown was too bad for the economy. And so he lifted it. Now you've got, as you would expect, a massively rising infection rate in India. It's now gone up to third in the world, third highest infections almost certainly it's first in the world. The testing is minute in India. It's a fraction of what it is in the United States, and the United States is below the Western average. Um, so India is almost certainly leading the global pandemic um, in reality right now, both in terms of 
terms of infections and probably in terms of deaths. What Modi will do about that now, I don't know, but he is becoming more and more autocratic. He is, he is India's Victor Orban. He's Victor Orban times 200. Um, and I, I don't expect good things to come, to come from Modi, and I think it's going to get worse. Okay. Well, Corey, you know, um, when you look at what's happening with Putin or you look at what's happening with Modi or you look at what's happening with Xi Jinping or you look at what's happening with Trump or Bolsonaro or Orban or others, you think, holy mackerel, democracy is in really tough straits. Yet there was an article in the New York Times um, op-ed page today which asked the question, which country will triumph in the post-pandemic world? And the answer was not any of those countries. It was Germany. Uh, and the reason it was Germany was that Germany had good, smart leadership and that Angela Merkel, who we had all been writing off, has had a kind of a resurgence and um, that Germany had responded well to COVID and was well positioned to emerge from it. And I was just wondering, as you look at that, what do you think of that kind of a take? And is that a, a, a ray of hope for the combination of democracy and good leadership? So I saw the article and um, was a little bit puzzled by its optimism for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, it suggested that the German economy, despite uh, the global downturn and despite frictions with as China's economy moves up the global value chain and becomes a direct competitor to German businesses, that the German car companies were going to be what powered us at, what powered the country to the head of the tables on, um, on economic recovery. And that struck me as unlikely. A second thing that struck me as unlikely in the optimism of the article was that uh, suggestion that um, uh, that Germany was so smart to have been uh, part of the the frugal northern alliance in the EU, and that now it could spend its money on its own population and didn't have to worry about Italy or Portugal or uh, other countries in the EU's. Uh, southern tier that are really going to struggle to get out of the economic doldrums. And I don't think Germany has that option either. Um, moreover, uh, Merkel's policy, I agree that Germany is an extraordinarily well-governed country, but the notion that the COVID-19 pandemic collapsed populism I think is, uh, first of all, asserted rather than unproven. Second, it goes against what we are seeing in places like the United States and uh, India and, um, uh, and other places without explaining why Germany will magically be different in this regard. And the last reason I'm skeptical of that is uh, Merkel herself is remarkably soft on China in a way that is splitting her political party. And she's got to find a way to consolidate the party behind her or pivot herself 
if she is going to remain a major political force for the remainder of her time in office. And I guess the last reason I'm a little more nervous about Germany than that op-ed uh, is the fact that the succession for Merkel, you know, her, her party's pulling incredibly high in large part because of her. And until they have a succession plan in place uh, that, that has a common approach on some of these challenges, I think Germany's going to have a lot bigger struggle than it suggests they will. Well, you could just see Merkel and, and, and Putin aging in the job for another 15 years until they're as old as Joe Biden. Um, <laughs> um, uh, look, let me ask, I'm going to ask Rosa one more question in this kind of series of questions. It's going to be a little bit of a departure. And then I want to go to each one of you as we sort of go through before we have to wrap it around three, uh, which is when we're recording this, folks. And, uh, I, and I'd like to ask you, what do you think is going to be the big international story other than COVID and the world economy that's going to hit between now and the election? But Rosa, even though we're looking at the rest of the world here, I can't help but observe that the president of the United States um, today said that the violence in cities run by Democrats in the U.S. is worse than the violence in Afghanistan. Um, and that is why he is sending in his little green men. And I do have to note that this is one thing he's stolen directly from Putin. He's sending in troops that don't have insignia uh, because, uh, you know, this allegedly uh, makes it harder to ascribe blame. Um, but in any event, are American cities run by Democrats worse than Afghanistan, Rosa? Uh, no, David, they are not. Um, the <laughs> Pardon me? That was the... year in Afghanistan. Okay. You know, um, but, but no, I mean, the, the number of Americans who die each year in homicides, for instance, has, has been roughly steady for many years now, and it sort of varies from about 15,000 to about 18,000 per year, Americans who die in homicides, the number of people in Afghanistan in the last 20 years per year who have died violently um, for one reason or another is, is generally speaking vastly, vastly higher. Uh, you know, it, it is true that America compared to, compared to Europe in particular uh, has far more violence in particular, particularly gun violence obviously, uh, than many, many other countries, but um, no, it's still better to be in an American city, even in Portland, than to be in Afghanistan. Um, this is part of, you know, obviously more Trumpian misinformation and disinformation, as you say, used to justify a, a federal crackdown and an effort. It's funny, it's funny how, how the GOP has completely lost interest in federalism, by the way. Um, but but uh, a crackdown in the face of democratically uh, governed cities. Um, I think this is basically just publicity stunts for his base. Um, I also think, though, and, and, and an you know, even more serious note, obviously it's, it's already serious what's happening in places like Portland, what happened in places like Washington, D.C. Uh, in May and June during the peak of the Black Lives Matter protests, um, already quite serious, but I, I also think that another thing that Trump is doing is it, it's, a, it's a kind of a dress rehearsal for what we may see closer to the election and, and in the immediate wake of the election, which is to say, 
you know, how do you figure out how to seize control in U.S. cities? And, and I, I think this is something that would have sounded ridiculously paranoid uh, a year ago, no longer feels particularly paranoid after, after the events of Lafayette Square, after what's been going on in Portland. Uh, and I think this is something that you know, Ed has written about. Um, as you know, I've been involved in some, some work on looking at potential uh, election and transition disruptions and, and the prospects of, of political violence in the U.S. Uh, in connection with the 2020 presidential election. And, I, and I, I do think, especially given Trump's also comments in the last uh, day or so, suggesting that he would not necessarily accept the vote count uh, uh, if, uh, from mail-in ballots. He might be refused to say, yes, I will accept the vote count. I, you know, I think that we should see these things as connected to one another. Um, you don't need to be particularly paranoid to do that. No. And for those of you who are listening from someplace other than the United States, uh, and if anybody disagrees with me, please intervene. Um, there actually is no crisis in American cities. There's not a lot of violence. The president is not sending these things in to solve a big problem. Um, you haven't seen convoys of refugees, desperate refugees fleeing Portland with their, their <laughs> belongings and, and little bandanas on sticks over their shoulder? Yeah, little bandanas. Well, I go even further than Rosa. Yeah. And say, for me, this really calls into question whether DHS should be disbanded. Um, because here, here. I notice on federalized use of military forces, the law is actually, Rosa, please correct me if I'm wrong, but what I understand from Harold Coe is that the law is quite specific um, about when federalized military forces can be used over the objections of elected civilian officials, and it requires a court order to do so. And the kinds of statements that the acting head of DHS is making, that there are no effective checks on federalized use of forces over the objections of elected local officials, that sounds incredibly dangerous to me. I, I, I hate to disagree with Harold, but I think, I think Harold is a, a legal process optimist uh, more than I am. Um, I actually think that, unfortunately, the law leaves a much, much more wiggle room for Trump. But I agree with your broader points. Yeah, no, the broader points are really important. So we got five minutes here. Um, Evelyn, do, do you think that you know, Russia moving into Ukraine is the big story between now and November that isn't COVID or the economy, or is there some other one? Well, I go back to, you know, as I was running for office, you know, the first crisis that I was really concerned about before the pandemic hit, which meant then that we had a coronavirus crisis and an economic crisis, was the climate crisis. And the meteorologists are forecasting a more active than usual hurricane season. Um, they've already said two hurricanes formed prior to July 1st, which is, I guess, the start of the season. I'm not a meteorologist. I just read a couple articles on this. <laughs> um, so I think I, I, I'm a little bit worried that our country, you know, and, and many other countries, um, island countries in particular, uh, you know, that are dealing with the pandemic and the economic crisis are all of a sudden going to be also managing the fallout from climate, the climate crisis, which is to say more active, more aggressive, more frequent hurricanes um, coming during the season. So I'm worried about that. And I just want to say this thing about DHS, you know, I worked 
for seven years as a senior staffer on the Senate Armed Services Committee responsible for homeland security issues once there was a homeland defense thing after 9-11. And, um, and I think that this is the problem, again, goes back to many conversations we've had about our Constitution, but there is way too much um, leeway allowed to the executive branch and now, literally, we have brown shirts, as far as I'm concerned, you know, um, on the streets of Oregon. And, um, and Americans are kind of oblivious to this. And Trump has said he's going to send more of them. So um, I don't know if that's the thing that's going to continue to happen between now and the election. But this president is so dangerous. He becomes more dangerous day by day. Um, the only thing that will tame him, though, are natural events like pandemics and hurricanes, because they force people to really face the the fact that he is unable to to manage this country and unable to keep us safe and is a science denier. No, I think that's a I think it's a good point. And that is something we can expect. Ed, what do you what do you think is going to be the headline? Uh, well I was going to pick up on what Rosa said and Rosa's transition in, in integrity project, by the way, does some amazing work. It's a really important huge yeah, yeah. Uh, subject and, and she runs it brilliantly. Um, so congratulations on doing that. No, it's fantastic. And the book you're going to do in a year called We Predicted the End of Democracy is going to be fantastic. <laughs> um, so, but, so I'll give you one and a half predictions. Um, the first is back for where we started, China. Um, the, the Hong Kong was always about Taiwan, showing Taiwan that one country, two systems could work. Um, <clears throat> was uh, China's Hong Kong strategy, and that's why it agreed to the deal, and my 97 happened like it did. And it's now stopped one country, two systems, um, and therefore is ending the carrot. It's ending the seduction uh, operation that seduced Taiwan. It's moving to the stick phase, and Taiwan had a presidential election a few months ago where it re-elected the Taiwanese nationalist, Xi Wang. And so... Taiwan is, to me, the flashing red sort of geopolitics that could go very badly wrong with Xi Jinping in this move. That's my first concern. Um, and the half prediction, I said one and a half, is a more parochial one from my country, Britain, um, you know, which is second only to Trump, the home of, of omni-shambolic clusterfuckery, as we've discussed before. <laughs> deep state radio. Um, and uh, Britain had sort of a story a bit like New York's, which is it got to it late um, and then had a very, very bad pandemic, but it flattened the curve. It eventually did the right things, you know, perhaps not as impressively as Cuomo led, but eventually Boris said the right things, did the right things, the curve was flattened. Having done all that, Britain's thinking, well, we've done the New York version. Now let's go for Florida and Texas. They look pretty good. Let's, let's exercise the ancient-born right, as Boris puts it, of, of, of Brits, to drink inside in a pub. And let's just say that's all fine. Um, it is quite extraordinary um, how reckless and negligent this is. Um, and um, it's completely unextraordinary what will result from it. We know what happens when you do this. And so Britain's going to have a second surge, and it is inviting it in. And it's very painful to watch this. Having been through the rehearsal once, it's, 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 it's tempting fate again. And it's very, it's very depressing to watch this. Um, well, you make, a, you, make, you make a good point. Corey, what's your prediction? We've got two minutes here, and we've got Rosa has to leave in one minute. So, um, 
In fact, let me let me let me do this. Let me ask Rosa first, and I'll go to you for the last word Good. because I know Rosa's got to go, and I see her wincing and. <laughs> I do have to hop off, and I apologize. I have a faculty meeting um, by Zoom. Um, I bet you're all really envious. Um, the only thing I was going to say is I, I don't know what it's going to be, but going back to what we were saying a few minutes ago about the likelihood of a disrupted or sabotaged U.S. presidential election or transition, uh, I do think it's extremely likely that one or more U.S. adversaries will choose the time period uh, between the election and inauguration to do something that they know would be harder to get away with uh, during ordinary times in the United States, um, or to do something that they know that if a Biden administration comes in, would become impossible or might still be possible in the waning lame duck days of a Trump administration. So I, I do think that we should be thinking and our national security agencies and intelligence agencies should be planning uh, and, and trying to figure out what are the most likely forms of uh, opportunistic actions that could be taken. It could be a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it could be a Chinese action against Taiwan, but it could be any number of other things from various other actors, uh, from Iran to North Korea to, to pick your favorite. Uh, so that, that, is, that is my only addition there. Um, okay, well, thank you. And, and really enjoy your, enjoy your faculty meeting. <laughs> Um, uh, okay, Corey, now that we've gotten rid of Rosa, let's talk great stuff. Now that we've gotten rid of Rosa, my prediction will be the inverse of hers. That is <laughs> that um, there will not be an opportunistic move against American interests uh, precisely because uh, the window will be closing on the Trump administration and adversaries will be worried about having to deal with a less shambolic. Ed, what was that whole perfect phrase you had about Britain? I was, I'm gonna... I was hoping I'd be given the opportunity to say it again. Omni-shambolic clusterfuckery. <laughs> and, I, and I want to know also how to make... not a, an inaccurate description of the Trump administration, but exactly. uh, as, as David will know, I can't repeat it since I don't curse. <laughs> I'm, sure that's, I'm sure that's true. Although I'm going to try to work omni-shambolic clusterfuckery into the title of this podcast <laughs> and, see, and, and see how Apple, Apple responds to that. Ed, do you want to tell us anything about our listenership that you've discovered in the past week? Yes, um, I am uh, DM'd uh, Mary Trump. DM direct messaged on Twitter um, to ask her for an interview. And she got back and said that she was, she hadn't missed an episode of Deep State Radio. Um, and that she was uh, very, very pleased to know that there were intelligent people in this world uh, hope, uh, trying to put things right or at least discussing it. So um, th there Thank are. Thank you, Mary Trump, for that nice compliment. Yeah. And we're sorry to use the term omni shambolic clusterfuckery. And we want you to know that came from Ed. It and did. She and, and it was, to be a special guest. Yes, I'm sure she would. Um, so, take, take this as an invitation from David. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, sure. Absolutely. Come on in, anybody. Um, uh, but uh, you know, I think Mary Trump's book sold a million copies in the first day, and if we took all of our next books and. <laughs> 
And we, we went. I finish that sentence, David Rothkopf. Yeah, well, congratulations. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, congratulations on that. So, you know, one of the things we wanted to do in this episode is return to our roots um, and say, you know, as you, you know, you can't get wrapped around the axle of watching Donald Trump 24 hours a day, even though he's going back to his 5 p.m. news conferences tomorrow because he wants you to get wrapped around that axle. Uh, and soon enough, we're going to be back in the regular old world with other countries, normal foreign policy, national security, um, uh, and ups and downs instead of just downs and downs. And uh, it's important that we stay on that, and that's why we have such good fortune to have such a great group with us every week. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Evelyn. Welcome back. Come back soon. Uh, thank you, Ed. Thank you, Rosa, off in your um, faculty meeting. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We encourage you later this week to listen to the next Agenda 2021 discussion, which is on climate, energy, and environmental policy with Carol Browner um, and David Sandelow, two of the top Democratic thinkers in this area. And, uh, and of course, we'll be back Thursday and probably talking about uh, COVID and taking a bit of a look at that big New York Times expose over the weekend and just how screwed up this process has been. So we've got a lot coming this week. Please join us for each of those and again every week uh, and stay healthy, everybody. Thanks a lot.